From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Researchers at the National Institutes of Health estimate that more than half a million people in the United States have Crohn's disease. We'll discuss the diagnosis and treatment options for this inflammatory bowel disease with a Mayo Clinic expert. It's as if the immune system forgets to turn itself off or it's lost the ability to distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys. Also on the program, Dr. Sanj Kakar steps in as co-host as we learn why the pituitary gland is known as the master gland. And we'll have the latest recommendations on safe sleeping environments for infants. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Crohn's disease. Have you heard of it, Tracy? I have. Well, today you're going to know everything there is to know about Crohn's disease Very by good. the end of the program. It's an inflammatory bowel disease, also referred to as an IBD. And Crohn's causes inflammation of the lining of your digestive tract, which can lead to abdominal pain, severe diarrhea, fatigue, weight loss, even malnutrition. Inflammation caused by Crohn's can involve different areas of the digestive tract in different people, thereby different symptoms, different people. Sure, Crohn's disease can be both painful and debilitating and sometimes may lead to life-threatening complications. While there's no known cure for Crohn's disease, therapies can greatly reduce its signs and symptoms and even bring about long-term remission. Here to discuss Crohn's disease is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Ed Loftus. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Loftus. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. An inflammation of the bowel. Tell us why that happens. The short answer is we still don't know. Um, there are a lot of hypotheses. What What's going on is that if you think about it, the gut is one of the major lines of defense for the body. Um, and it has to have a vigorous, healthy immune system. But if that immune system is too healthy or too vigorous, too overactive, um, it could result in inflammation. And it, the way I think of it simplistically, it's, it's as if the immune system forgets to turn itself off or if it's lost the ability to distinguish between the good guys and the bad guys. And so this persistent inflammation leads to abdominal pain, diarrhea, and if uncontrolled, can lead to narrowings of the bowel, obstruction, fistulas, abscess, etc. How common is it, or are we just hearing more about Crohn's disease? Well, it is becoming more common, and it seems as if as countries become more economically developed and sanitation improves, Ironically, we see more and more of these immune-mediated conditions. You may have heard something called the hygiene hypothesis in asthma. So kids that grow up on farms are less likely to get asthma than kids who grow up in the city. And we think the same thing might hold true for Crohn's. Maybe lack of exposure to certain antigens when you're a child means that your immune system isn't fine-tuned enough. And then later on in life, that might result in intestinal inflammation. The other theory, of course, is that there's something in our westernized diet that might be contributing to Crohn's disease. For example, in Asia, they didn't have Crohn's disease 30 years ago, and hmm. now they're seeing it much more frequently. So this is not something that you're born with? You sort of implied that it, it would occur later on in life? 
Correct. The average age of diagnosis is in the late 20s or early 30s. About 15% of people are diagnosed in the pediatric age range, typically after the age of 10, but occasionally at a younger age. However, you can see Crohn's being diagnosed even in people in their 70s and 80s. One of the things that I have learned doing this program with Dr. Shives over the years, in the last year and a half, I've heard so much about the microbiome and having a healthy gut and the importance of reducing the amount of antibiotics that we take and that we ingest in our food. How does that whole piece play into Crohn's? It might play a lot. There are a few studies suggesting that early exposure to antibiotics might increase the risk of pediatric onset Crohn's disease, and there's weaker data to suggest that uh, use of antibiotics later in life might contribute to later onset Crohn's, but clearly the pediatric onset is, is more concerning. So what are they studying when it comes to the microbiome and some of these different gut issues? It's really, really complicated. Right now, you can't even culture most of the bacteria in the colon using conventional microbiologic techniques. And so all of this is being done with DNA fingerprinting techniques, and it requires incredible computer resources and money. So just to sample one person's microbiome right now is very time-consuming and, and expensive. And we're just in the infancy of this science. Does Crohn's count as a healthy gut type issue? Are those are these two different situations we're talking about? No, there are some studies <laughs> to suggest that people with Crohn's disease have differences in their microbiome compared to people with a healthy gut. So there, there's some, one of the problems though is, is it the chicken or the egg? In other words, is it the inflammation that changes the bacteria or is it the change in bacteria that contributes to the inflammation? You sort of suggested that this was caused by the environment or something that we would eat. Does it run in families then? There, there is a, a definitely a genetic component. Crohn's, in fact, was one of the um, pioneering diseases with all these this emphasis on genomics and genome-wide associated studies. There have actually been 200 different genetic mutations weekly associated with Crohn's disease, and it's estimated that the average person with Crohn's disease might have four or five of these mutations in these susceptibility genes, but it's not the classic Mendelian genetics where you know if what your parents' eye color is, you can predict your own eye color. It's very, very complex. The average genetic mutation is very common, and only 4% of the people with any of these genetic mutations actually have Crohn's. So there's a genetic susceptibility at the baseline, and then there's some environmental factor that triggers the whole process, and what that environmental factor might vary from person to person. And, and it's theorized that Crohn's disease isn't probably just one disease. It might be 50 different diseases, and they're expressing itself in a final common pathway. Wow, it all gets pretty complex. Very, it? very complex. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it can occur basically at any age. You said normally people are diagnosed in their late 20s or 30s. What do they come in with? What are their, what are their symptoms? So the most common presentation is developing inflammation in the bottom of the small intestine where it meets the large intestine, and that often results in diarrhea, or abdominal discomfort, sometimes urgency, having to run to the bathroom quickly, uh, often fatigue. Um, if, however, pe some people present later on and they've already developed a stricture, so some people will present with severe abdominal pain with nausea and vomiting and actually develop a bowel obstruction. And uh, those people may require surgery. In fact, this, the, the diagnosis may not even be made 
until surgery is done for a bowel obstruction. Okay, so they go to the emergency room. A, a bowel obstruction is diagnosed usually on a CT or maybe even a, a plain X-ray of the abdomen. They go to surgery. They send a piece of the, the removed bowel to the uh, pathology lab, and they make the diagnosis. Correct. Is it pretty specific, pretty easy to diagnose under the microscope? It's a clinical diagnosis, which means the clinician has to put together multiple streams of information to make the diagnosis, taking into account the the symptoms, the blood work, uh, the appearance on the colonoscopy, and what the biopsies show. Um, and there is no one single finding that says, aha, you have Crohn's disease. It's, a, it's what we call a clinical diagnosis, so it's a syndrome. But basically, you're looking for chronic inflammation on the intestinal biopsies. So do you ever make the diagnosis without a biopsy? I am always very hesitant to do so because there are mimics of Crohn's disease. For example, intestinal tuberculosis or lymphoma, uh, certain infections. There's an, an infection called Yersinia, and these can mimic Crohn's disease. So we are always reluctant to make that diagnosis without intestinal tissue. And when you get the, the tissue, I assume that you can do that without opening the abdomen in most cases? Correct. Uh, usually by colonoscopy because you sample the lining of either the colon or the very, very bottom of the small intestine. All right, gastroenterologist Dr. Ed Loftus talking to us about Crohn's disease. We've learned about the symptoms, the diagnosis. When we come back, we'll talk about the treatment plus... Myth or matter of fact, yeah. IBD can be caused by nerves and stress. Is that a myth or a fact? We'll find out when we return. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back with gastroenterologist Dr. Ed Loftus, who's an expert in Crohn's disease. Well, we've got a myth or matter of fact for you, Dr. Loftus. Myth or matter of fact, IBD can be caused by nerves and stress. Is that a myth or a fact? It's mostly myth. Um, we don't think that stress per se can cause IBD, but in patients who have Crohn's disease, we think that stress could cause flares of mm. the condition. And so it, it, stress in and of itself won't cause the condition, but it can worsen the condition. What about some other, other risk factors for Crohn's? Well, cigarette smoking uh, worsens really? Crohn's disease. Yes, uh, people who uh, smoke are more likely to get Crohn's disease. And in fact, their clinical course of Crohn's disease is worse. And so the single most important lifestyle modification people can make if they have Crohn's disease is to stop smoking cigarettes. No kidding. Yes. So uh, we know that there are, we've learned a lot about Crohn's disease, but we know that there are other inflammatory bowel diseases like ulcerative colitis. How do you tell the difference? And, and what is the difference between the different kind of, and how many kinds are there? Well, by definition, ulcerative colitis is localized to the colon. The type of inflammation in ulcerative colitis is slightly different because it's localized to the most superficial level of the bowel, whereas with Crohn's disease, it can be a full thickness inflammation. The entire bowel wall is thickened and inflamed, and, and that's one way to differentiate. The other way is that Crohn's is often patchy and segmental in nature, whereas ulcerative colitis tends to be continuous throughout the colon. So if you see a patient where the rectum looks normal, the sigmoid is inflamed, but higher up is normal than another point of inflammation, that is much more suggestive of Crohn's disease. Before we get to treatment, I just want to ask one other thing about risk factors. Are women more likely to have Crohn's disease than men? 
it's roughly 50-50 for, um, for, for Crohn's disease, but for ulcerative colitis, there's a slight male predominance. And what about, we know that with ulcerative colitis, it significantly increases your risk for colon cancer. Does Crohn's increase your risk for cancer of the bowel? It does. If you have colonic involvement with Crohn's disease, it probably increases your risk of colon cancer. If you have small intestinal involvement, there's a rare form of small bowel cancer. The absolute risk is fairly low, maybe 2 to 3% over a lifetime, but that's much, much higher than it would be in the general population. So you've said it's basically a, a clinical diagnosis. We've talked about the risk factors. We know you can get it at any age, but most commonly in the late 20s, early 30s, abdominal pain, fatigue, diarrhea. So once you've made that diagnosis, based on all the information you have, probably including a biopsy, what do you do to, for treatment? So the, the the first thing we often treat is with steroids. We will give either prednisone or there's a type of uh, modified steroid that has fewer prednisone-related side effects called budesonide. And that will relieve some of the symptoms in the short term, but that's not an effective long-term treatment because of the side effects of steroids. And that's basically a super anti-inflammatory. You're doing that to reduce the inflammation. Right. And and the beauty of those is that they work rapidly. And so you can start making the patient feel better oftentimes within days or a week or two. But then how do you treat the Crohn's? What do we do long term? (laughs) Right. So we have a series of medications called immunomodulators, and these include medications like azathioprine or mercaptopurine or methotrexate. We also have another class of drugs called the biologics, and biologics are basically synthetic proteins that mimic antibodies, and these are directed against specific inflammation targets. Uh, the, the most common example is a drug called infliximab, also known as Remicade, uh, but there are cousins of that, adalimumab, sertilizumab, and these are given either IV or subcutaneously, and this uh, is directly targeting one of the really, really important inflammatory molecules in Crohn's disease. But can it cure Crohn's, or do you just manage Crohn's? You manage Crohn's. There really is no cure, per se, for Crohn's. Um, Part of the challenge with Crohn's is that the clinical course over the years can be very variable, and some people have a mild course and other people have a more severe course. And so when we're making some of these treatment decisions, we're trying to prognosticate, is this a high-risk patient versus a low-risk patient? So the patient that gets Crohn's disease at a very young age and has lots of small bowel involvement, that's a high-risk patient, meaning they have a higher risk for going on to requiring surgery, and we want to treat them more aggressively. This summer, Dr. Shives and I uh, did some interviews about fecal transplants in helping patients who are experiencing a lot of these same symptoms. Is that an option for someone who suffers from a more severe case of Crohn's disease? It's a hot topic right now, and there are studies uh, looking into this, and there there are some studies suggesting that fecal transplant plants might help people with ulcerative colitis. As of yet, we're not convinced that fecal transplants help people with Crohn's disease, but people are looking into this. They want to try it? If they suffer so bad, I'm sure they want to try it. Uh, Patients are always asking 
for fecal transplants. And, and part of it is a concern because the, the medications that we're talking about are very effective medications, but they carry some risks because they can suppress parts of the immune system and increase the risk of infections, and they might increase the risk slightly of certain types of malignancies like skin cancers or lymphomas. The people who are getting those recurrent clostridium difficile yes. infections, the success rate with those is over 90%. In the studies of ulcerative colitis, the success rates are much lower, and in some of the studies, it is significantly better than placebo, but in other studies, it's not. And so it's. The, I think the jury is still out on how effective they are. But, you know, I can see how someone can be so frustrated that they do want to try everything, even surprisingly fecal transplant, because it affects your quality of life so much. Correct. I mean, I always go to the symptom of uh, if you have urgency, meaning like you have 30 seconds of warning before you need to use the restroom, that really does, that impacts your entire life. And uh, even though these are, you know, people don't like to talk about these diseases, they are quite disabling. And uh, we it just points to the fact that we need to do a better job at identifying effective treatments. But I think you did say or did at least imply that you can pretty much control the symptoms of most patients with the medications that you have. Correct. Uh, but the medications are tricky. Another reason that they're tricky, not just because of side effects, is that they many of these treatments are proteins, and proteins are immunogenic, meaning that the body's own immune system can eventually recognize that they're not self. And then you mm. develop an antibody reaction to the drug, the drug levels go down, and the drug stops working. And so what we will often see is a patient, we get them on a good drug, they have a good run for two or three years, but then they lose response to the drug. Then we have to do more testing and then uh, switch to a different agent. Does the whole of the bowel get inflamed, or is it just a little bitty part? Could you cut out that little part, or is the whole thing inflamed and that's not an option? It's, it's variable. Uh, sometimes it is just a small part, and surgery um, is effective in the short term. The problem is, is that the recurrence rate after surgery, if, so if you were to do a colonoscopy 12 months after the person has a surgery, they're going to have inflammation present 80% of the time. And so the clinical recurrence rate is like 50-50 after five years. So surgery is good for temporizing, but again, it's not a cure. And and the other the other last frontier is diet. Uh, we you know the, there are lots of you search diet and Crohn's disease on the internet. You'll see a lot of funky diets out there. I think Most, that might be the first thing that you'd want to do. <laughs> right, and patients that's the first thing that patients ask about. Right. But it's hard to prove that there is one diet that works for everybody. And I give people some suggestions, you know, cut down on the sugar, cut back on the dairy, reduce red meat intake. Uh, After that, you know, gluten-free, those sorts of things, it's really, we we just don't have the data to support those things. All right, but you're learning more every day. Yes. Dr. Ed Loftus, gastroenterologist, GI specialist at the Mayo Clinic and an expert on Crohn's disease. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how the pituitary gland helps regulate many functions in your body. And later on in the program, we'll discuss the latest recommendations on safe sleep for infants. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
In his classic Christmas song, Andy Williams calls this the most wonderful time of the year. But do you agree? Or do you feel overwhelmed by a calendar that's overbooked with shopping, parties, and other holiday commitments? Well, you shouldn't have to connect every dot, says Mayo Clinic resiliency expert Dr. Amit Sood. He says holidays should be about recovering from weeks and months of stress, not about packing in so much stuff. Dr. Sood offers two tips to make the holiday season wonderful again. His first suggestion, get some sleep. Uh, in, in my order of priorities, sleep is like number one, number two, number three, number four. Dr. Sood is the author of the Mayo Clinic Guide to Stress-Free Living. He says a little shut-eye will go a long way. Most of the patients I see are behind on sleep. So if you can catch extra time, take a one-hour nap. Then Dr. Sood says take a pen to your to-do list. Make a not-to-do list, not a to-do list, because I have no doubt in my mind you're doing stuff that you don't need to do, which is crowding your, your life. Dr. Sood says a not-to-do list creates the gift of time in your holiday schedule, time for experiences and for being grateful. Between Thanksgiving and New Year, that is the time when gratitude is in the air time of reflection. This is a time of rejuvenation, and that's what we should focus on. And in other news, let's talk about acute bronchitis. Is it contagious? Well, yes. Now, most of the time, acute bronchitis is caused by a virus. The flu virus is a common cause, but many other viruses can cause acute bronchitis. Flu viruses spread mainly from person to person by droplets produced when an ill person coughs, sneezes, or talks. Now, flu viruses also may spread when people touch something with the virus on it and then touch their mouth, eyes, or nose. Many other respiratory viruses are spread that way, too. So here are some tips on how to reduce your risk of catching viruses that cause bronchitis. Avoid close contact with people who have the flu or another respiratory illness. Wash your hands often or use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. And get an annual flu shot. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. The pituitary gland is a pea-sized gland located at the base of the brain. Despite its small size, the gland influences nearly every part of your body. It's often referred to as the body's master control gland. The hormones regulated by the pituitary gland perform important functions such as growth, blood pressure, reproduction, thyroid function, and even skin pigmentation. When the pituitary gland is working properly, we don't even notice it, but sometimes the pituitary overproduces or underproduces its hormones, and diagnosis is very difficult because the symptoms can be so varied. Here to discuss what we need to know about the pituitary gland is Dr. William Young. Dr. Young is Division Chair of Endocrinology at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Young. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. So what's the deal? Is it the smallest or is it the master gland? Can it be both? It's both, yes. <laughs> how, how does that work? So so it, it's small. So it's a little bigger than a pea. If you look at your thumbnail, it's about a little smaller than your thumbnail. Um, and it sits right at the base of the brain. It hangs down from the brain, kind of like a, a cherry on a stem. And this gland has four major jobs in adults. It uh, tells the thyroid to make thyroid hormone every day. Uh, it tells the adrenal glands to make cortisone every day. And it tells the gonads, so testicles in men and ovaries in women, tells the gonads what to do, and so it's re responsible for fertility. And its last job in adults is to tell the kidneys how to save water. And this is actually a really important function. Um, if 
were missing that hormone from the back part of the pituitary. It's called antidiuretic hormone. You'd have to drink about 12 gallons of water a day just to stay hydrated. So this, we have a, it's like a thermostat up there that is constantly monitoring how either overhydrated we are or underhydrated we are. So if you go and drink, um, uh, like a 16 ounce Mountain Dew, um, and you put that volume in your body, you're not going to retain it. Uh, so it turns that hormone off. It allows the kidneys to get rid of the water. So Dr. Young, you mentioned the, the analogy of a thermostat, and we know how important a thermostat is, but sometimes it doesn't work. It can either go into overdrive or not produce as much. So wh- why does that happen? So two main reasons why that happens. When you mention overdrive, that happens if you actually develop a tumor of the pituitary gland. These tumors come from one of the cell types of the pituitary, and the cell types are the types that I just mentioned. So there's a cell type that tells the adrenal glands to make cortisone. And if you get a a tumor of that cell type in the pituitary, it's going to tell the adrenal glands to make too much cortisone, and that's called Cushing syndrome, and that presents with increasing body weight, um, loss of muscle strength, high blood pressure, diabetes, purple-red stretch marks on the abdomen. So that's an example of uh, where one of the cells in the pituitary turns into a tumor. And that can happen to all the cells in the pituitary, and it can cause that overdrive of any of those hormones we've been talking about. Is that a malignant type of a tumor? Uh, 99% of the time, these are benign tumors. Okay. Uh, in the history of Mayo Clinic, we've had about 15 patients who've had a malignant pituitary tumor, hmm. so it's really quite rare to be malignant. And you had said uh, the four different things that it does in adults. What are there additional things that it does in children? The one additional thing it does in in the child is it's responsible for growth. So the pituitary makes growth hormone. Once uh, you reach full adult height, it's debatable whether you actually need growth hormone anymore as an adult. So just so I understand, when you have patients that are either dwarfism or you have gigantism, is that a pituitary problem causing them to uh, have too much growth hormone? It absolutely is a pituitary problem. There are different reasons for dwarfism, but uh, the one that's called pituitary dwarfism is when the pituitary gland is not making enough growth hormone. And that's usually due to some damage to the pituitary from a tumor or some other process. Sometimes it can just be congenital where the pituitary, the cells that make growth hormone are just not there. So that's uh, sort of a rather extreme variation that I gave you. How would patients know if they had, for example, a pituitary tumor? Well, that's a tough one. Um, The signs of a pituitary tumor can be from overproduction, like we mentioned, Cushing's syndrome. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can be overproduction of some of the other hormones. Uh, Another hormone, and this this is, I I mentioned the four major jobs Mm -hmm. plus growth in kids. There actually is a, a sixth role, and that's in women who are pregnant. Um, so the pituitary makes a hormone called prolactin, and this tells the breast during pregnancy to get ready uh, to breastfeed. And then the elevated prolactin after delivery allows a woman to breastfeed. So that's another role. Mm-hmm. But that can also be, in fact, that's the most common type of hormone-producing pituitary tumor where the pituitary tumor makes too much prolactin. So in a woman, in a woman, that can cause leaking of milk from the breast, for example, and lack of menstrual periods. It can basically recreate the, the postpartum state. So there, the, in terms of what would a patient look for, it's, mm-hmm. it's so, so diffuse. You know, it depends on well, what hormone we're talking about. That's the next question I was going to ask then. How do you know if that you've got a pituitary problem and not something wrong with your thyroid or something wrong with your adrenal glands? How would you know, oh, it's the pituitary that's the problem? 
Right. So that's something that an endocrinologist like me would sort out for the patient. Is that blood levels or how do you measure that? Right. So let's say, let's say the adrenals are, have failed. And then the question is, why did the adrenals fail? Were they not getting the signal from the pituitary or did something happen at the adrenal glands? And we figure that out by measuring blood levels. So we measure the pituitary hormone and we measure the adrenal hormone cortisol. If the adrenal hormone is low because, you know, it's failed, and, but the pituitary hormone is very high, that tells us it's the, the adrenal gland fault. Whereas if the pituitary hormone's low, cortisone's low, that tells us there's a problem at the level of the pituitary. Dr. Young's very intelligent because oh I never God. understood that in medical school. I always <laughs> get those questions wrong. <laughs> but uh, in terms of treatment, where are we in 2016 in terms of treating these, uh, these tumors? So uh, treatment has advanced uh, rapidly when you kind of think back. There was a, a neurosurgeon in Montreal in the 1960s that developed a new approach to the pituitary. Before that, it was an incision uh, called a craniotomy where you'd actually go through the top of the head and take some of the bone out and, and go down to the pituitary. In terms of where the pituitary actually sits in the head, I mentioned it hangs down from the brain. What's well, straight behind the bridge of the nose and just in front of the ears, so, right in the center. Yeah, right in the center. Right in the center. So um, uh, this uh, Dr. Hardy developed um, this new approach to the pituitary by going through the nose. Hmm. Initially, actually, he developed by going under the uh, upper lip and tunneling back behind the nose. And that, that procedure from the 1960s has been um, advanced over time. Initially, it was done with an operating microscope, and now it's done with an endoscope. You actually just go through one nostril. The patient's in the hospital just one night. Wow. Uh, it's, it's a pretty uh, uh, slick approach to the pituitary gland. Is, is the pituitary gland the smallest gland, or is the thyroid? Which, which one is the smallest? Pituitary is the smallest. All right. Yeah. I see. I didn't go to medical school, so I didn't get a chance to find <laughs> that out. That's why you're wise. You know, many years. <laughs> and uh, are you seeing more of these uh, these problems with the pituitary uh, gland? Are you seeing more patients present with this? I don't think the prevalence of pituitary disease has really changed. To be honest, there are there are some endocrine tumors where we're seeing more of them, and it relates more to technology. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the annual incidence of thyroid cancer yeah. has increased dramatically over the last decade. But that relates to the availability of ultrasound of the thyroid. To be able to find the thyroid cancer. To be cancer. able to find the thyroid cancer. And for the pituitary, you know, we've had MRIs for a long time now. Uh, we really, there's no new technology that's increased the detection rate of pituitary tumors. It's just that blood test is just always the way to it's, go. It's hormone testing in the blood and um, as mentioned, it's viewed as quite complicated by most physicians. Well, we're glad that we've got you on staff. <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking about the pituitary gland with Mayo Clinic Endocrinology Division Chair, Dr. William Young. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Young. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Dr. Shies returns as co-host as we discuss safe sleeping environments for babies with a Mayo Clinic experts. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, also known as AAP, 
There are some 3,500 infants who die every year in the United States due to what is called a sleep-related death. And that includes sudden infant death syndrome as well as accidental strangulation and suffocation. The number of infant deaths did decrease in the 1990s after a pretty successful national safe sleep campaign. But the number of infant sleep-related deaths has plateaued more recently. With the goal of decreasing infant sleep deaths even further, the AAP released updated recommendations for a safe infant sleeping environment in November. Here to discuss the latest sleep recommendations for infants is pediatrician Dr. Esther Critch. Dr. Critch is also co-medical editor of the book, Mayo Clinic Guide to Your Baby's First Year. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Critch. Thank you for having me. I can't think of anything uh, much more tragic than uh, an infant dying in their crib. So I know that there have been some recommendations in the past that we're all pretty much aware of, but tell us about the new recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Absolutely. I think there's nothing worse than if an infant should suddenly die unexpectedly. And when it happens for reasons that are completely unexplainable. We call that SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And as you alluded to, the recommendations in 1992 were the Back to Sleep campaign. Then in 2005, they expanded the recommendations for firm sleep surface, nothing extra in the crib. And then these latest recommendations are really related to the sleep environment in addition to those things because of the plateau that we've seen. Can we increase kids' safety even further by modifying the sleep environment. So what's new in these latest recommendations? So the the new thing is the recommendation to have children sleep in their parents' room up until three months of age or older if if it suits the family. There are some evidence to say that this could reduce the risk of SIDS by 50%. Um, The mechanism of how that happens isn't exactly clear. Some theories are that it's related to the infant not sleeping as deeply. Some people think it's because the parents are right next to the infant and they're able to react more quickly. Yeah, but so but react uh, to your child not breathing. Right. right. So that's where I think we don't exactly know what what part of sleeping together is it okay. that reduces the risk as much as 50% in the best case scenario. We don't, we don't have that answer yet. The first time that I heard this, I have to say my eyebrows shot up because I thought, <laughs> what? Putting yeah. a baby in the bed? Oh, no, it's bringing the baby's bassinet or right. crib into the parent's room, right. not in the parent's bed. Exactly, yeah. So then why is that a bad idea? It's related to the asphyxiation, strangulation piece that you had mentioned earlier. There's a risk that if the baby is in the bed, with a very exhausted set of parents, that those parents could inadvertently roll on the child or a pillow could land on the child's mm-hmm. face, and that could be tragic. And you hear those stories. Yeah. Oh, very yeah. sad. So, so you don't want your baby in bed with you? Ideally, no. And you don't want your pet in bed with you either, but some people, <laughs> I guess it's all right if you roll over and kill your dog. No, right that's no. terrible too. <laughs> Certainly not yeah. your child. But there are some parents that swear by it. And so are there yeah. ways that you can successfully or more safely do a co-sleeping thing? Well, ideally, you wouldn't co-sleep. But the AAP has said that if you're going to feed your baby at night, pull them into the bed with you, and feed them in your bed. That's a safer place than feeding them in a recliner and then falling asleep holding your baby in the recliner. So ideally, in a perfect world, we'd 
we'd all feed her babies, stay awake, and put them back in their crib, which is located right near our beds. Um, the world's not perfect. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so if you're, but those if are you're, best those case, are best practice. case scenarios. Yeah. And what about a pacifier? Yeah. So the AAP also has recommended that use of a pacifier at sleep onset can reduce the risk of SIDS. The pacifier doesn't have to be replaced during sleep if it falls out, and the effect of the pacifier is supposed to last through the the infant's sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a recommendation. I wouldn't say it, it's as high a level of evidence as the Back to Sleep campaign for mattress, nothing else in the mattress. And nothing else of, in the bed, so no toys or teddy no, bears or anything or like that. crib bumpers or blankets. Or, and as kids get older, that's not a bad thing anyway because those things can be used as a step, which then allows them to get out of that crib and potentially fall and injure themselves. Do we have any idea of the children who die of SIDS, why that happens? No, and that's why it's one of those big unexplained that we keep searching for what is it we can do to reduce it because we don't know what causes it. There are certain children who we have classified as SIDS deaths, and then we later find out they maybe had a cardiac channelopathy or they had an arrhythmia. A a cardiac what? Electrolyte channel problem in the heart that causes an arrhythmia. Oh, okay. And so sometimes we find out later why those children died, and and they were classified as a SIDS initially. Uh, But in fact, it might have been a Mm -hmm. heart problem, an electrical problem of the heart. Of the heart, right. What about swaddling? That's one of the things that you hear about. You know, I like Mm -hmm. to call it making a baby burrito, but (laughs) what about swaddling? Isn't it supposed to comfort them? It is supposed to comfort them. And I think swaddling, when done right in a small child who isn't going to be able to get out of the blanket, is safe and effective and can be very effective in comforting a fussy infant. Mm -hmm. As that child gets older, three, four months, and they're stronger and they're able to get out of that blanket, it's probably time to think about stopping swaddling. I presume the reason you don't put a baby on their stomach Mm -hmm. is because they can potentially suffocate because once they're on their stomach, they can't roll over. Is that? Right. So that's why a back-to-sleep campaign. Right. Put your baby to sleep on their back. Exactly. And back is considered safer than side. There's those products, though, that that wedges to hold them. Are those a good idea? They're not, really. Okay. So there isn't anything out there that you can add to the bed Mm -hmm. that might help prevent SIDS? No. The best thing you can do is remove things from the bed to prevent SIDS. And finally, what about the people who like to let their kids sleep in their car seats? Yeah. Um, In young infants, it's not recommended because of the neck angle. Potentially, uh, in a prolonged sleep with the neck at an angle, it could lead to a suffocation or asphyxiation, theoretically. If you're going on a long car ride with a normal, healthy baby, you should be fine. If you have a baby with health problems, we usually recommend you check with your physician before going on a long car ride if you know that your infant might be a risk. All right, so the new recommendation once again is put the baby to sleep in its crib with nothing else in it in your bedroom but not in your bed. Exactly. And how long should that crib stay in the parents' room? Ideally, at least up until three months, six months if you can handle it. All right. And then put them back in your room when they're teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Esther Critz, thanks so much for being with us. She's co-medical editor of the highly acclaimed book, A Mayo Clinic Guide, Your Baby's First Year. She's a pediatrician at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks for bringing us up to date with the new recommendations. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week.
For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.